The song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. I, I know I what I normally say, uh, but it feels fitting based on the topic to say that we have a pretty epic episode today, Dave. Totally rad, bruh. Gonna be gnarly. Thank you, Johnny Ace. I really appreciate that. <laughs> you can tell I really talk like that. Were they the Dudical Dudes? What was the name of that group? I, I can never remember. Dynamic Dudes. The Dynamic Dudes. The Dudical Dudes feels like it fit a little bit better. but The Dudical Dudes would be like if uh, the Dynamic Dudes in Techno Team 2000 had, had a baby. <laughs> uh, would they? Would that baby skateboard? I think is the real question. I think it would use like a like a Back to the Future style hoverboard of sorts. <laughs> that would be pretty epic. Oh, boom! I'm so proud of myself for that. Yeah, no, we are doing epic storytelling this week, but we are not doing the normal uh, Joseph Campbell hero journey style of storytelling per se. Uh, we're going to be focusing on a specific kind. With epic storytelling, uh, just so we don't get too in the weeds of a lot of this stuff. Right, Dave? Yeah, definitely. I, I used to teach uh, Hero's Journey and Joseph Campbell and, and that stuff to students. And um, if you would like me to teach it to you, I would gladly do so. All you have to do is join us over on uh, patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. And uh, I'll teach you all about, you know, uh, the whole circle thing with the line through the middle with the known world and the unknown world and, and, and all that. I can do all that for you. Uh, but, but today... Uh, I, I kind of just wanted to zero in specifically on like some of the main takeaways that we can get from the kind of traditional classical epics, some of those original, very, very old stories, because I think wrestling is very, very closely connected to, to the way that some of the most basic and, and most authentic uh, human stories were crafted back in back in the back in the day. And uh, we actually worked, uh, well, I should say you worked on a definition, and I kind of want to break it down piece by piece because I, I th- looking at it, it's very it's very specific to uh, what it reminds me of. Actually, specifically, is a. Uh, uh, wrestling isn't wrestling. Uh, we're not going to reference that too much, but there's a lot of stuff in here that I like kind of pings me in that way. And uh, the first part of it is that it's a self-consciously long. And, and to me, that's a really interesting idea because you come into wrestling with this idea that you're going to have a long and successful career and you kind of have to build up a character. You can't just have him be, unless he's the giant, you can't have him be champion the first night. No, definitely. You you have to build up to things, right? I think that's one of the, the complaints that people have about wrestling today or have had at wrestling at any point in history when they weren't satisfied with it, let's be fair. And, and that's that the, the stories did not build adequately, that there isn't enough set up before the climax and follow through after the climax. And uh, in, in some of those classical epics, there there's parts where if you've ever read them unabridged and stuff, especially in verse there's just pages where you're like begging for something to happen or, or where you're glazing over. And this is coming from like the biggest, like literary nerd uh, probably in existence or, or, or on the top 10, definitely. So, uh, but, but I think part of that comes from the idea that these stories uh, were originally meant not just as, as to be written, but also to be like spoken and performed. So it was almost like, you know, Shakespeare in some way that, while that language isn't accessible to us today, much like the kind of long rambling nature of some of the stuff in those old epics isn't accessible to us today, um, it kind of shows you what performance-wise uh, was entertaining in the time. So the epics don't just speak to storytelling, they also kind of speak to performance. And once again, we're kind of back at wrestling. 
Yeah, and uh, the idea, part of that was this idea that they were very heavily structured. There was this, you knew when a, not necessarily when a joke was coming, but you understood the way that acts and act breaks and things like that worked. Even if you weren't even literate, you had an idea of the rhythm of the stories being told and the, in a super sense, the structure of the story itself. Yeah, definitely. Like I always think of Homer, he like all of his epics are broken into books, which are basically like like large chapters or sections. And each one really could stand independently. Each one, for the most part, is a fairly self-contained story about a step in the journey or a particular conversation or a particular conflict or a particular character stepping to the side and doing something themselves. Like every piece of it is very self-contained. Once again, like wrestling, though, you're building this very long narrative and maybe it's hard to see the end and, you know, you're, you're worried you're going to lose people if there's not something flashy right in front of them. But there's all sorts of, you know, uh, kind of detail work that you need to be doing along the way to make sure that the big angle both pays off, uh, but also you don't lose people along the way. Yeah, it, it's what's hard about it in terms of structuring it is everything. And, and this has to go with telling stories uh, verbally, like a oral hist- uh, an oral uh, tradition. Uh, but it also has to do with like comic books is the other thing it reminds me of. And I think that's, that, that's something we'll talk about eventually uh, in, ter- in terms of a topic for an entire episode. But comic books are the only thing that I feel like are close. And the advantage that comic books have is um, that they can construct their characters entirely. And wrestling can't do that with their our actual performers, right? Like they can't make Braun Strowman actually strong enough to do everything that they show him doing, but they can create a universe in which you believe that that person exists both in our, as the the same space as us, but that is, is bigger than us is larger than life as, as, as you put it. And uh, you you can see it in the pre-show notes, Dave did a great job with them. Uh, But yeah, they're the, the idea of larger, these larger than life characters in the literal sense, Brock Lesnar, Hulk Hogan, these like, not just heroes, but like large men basically that, that signify certain things. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're right to say they signify things. It's like I said in the Dusty Rhodes episode last week that I think for people that Vince McMahon doesn't know personally, they only represent things to him. They're not people. Uh, And the characters in these big epic narratives are always like that. It's like they always stand for things. In like the Homeric epics, everybody has their epithet. Everybody has their modifier that's literally attached to their name every time. Or like in Virgil's Aeneid, he's Pius Aeneas. Every time they mention his name or almost every time they mention his name, he's not just Aeneas, he's pious Aeneas. Like people really represent things and your main character trait or your defining trait is really uh, telling not just of what you're all about, but like what your destiny is. Because people who have that trait are this way and this is how they get ahead and this is how they fall back down. Like it's very kind of generalized character building where if you start to analyze Hulk Hogan or if you start to analyze like uh, Odysseus too hard, you're like, man, these aren't really like characters. They're just kind of like, you know, they're, they're someone who's, they're someone whose stuff is happening to who has thoughts and feelings in the moment. But like, I don't know, they, they don't have like the depth that you would see in like a platinum era television character. Like they're not Walter White, like wrestling characters and epic heroes aren't necessarily Walter White. They're, 
they're thinner, but at the same time, they represent these like big, grandiose, universal ideas. With Walter White in particular, he's doing something. Uh, his story is very scaled. It's very um, gradual. And then that's why the prequels work so well. Uh, the prequel, uh, Better Call Saul, works so well. Is that this gradual process where he does these things that are are important, but they're not these like... Um, I mean, there are instances, I don't want to spoil anything, but there are instances in the show where he takes a turn and shifts the entire world, but I I don't think it has the same instantaneous of rise of, like, Hulk Hogan body slamming Andre the Giant. That is a thing that happens in this moment, and I think it's a different idea than what the worst or the best of what Walter White does where you're he's kind of he built it builds into these things and you and you when you learn more about him you understand that 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 building comes from 20 years of resentment and stuff like that but with hogan it's literally just like i have to do this thing in this moment i have to have this larger than life feat to propel myself forward in this narrative yeah i think that kind of speaks to the idea that wrestling sort of as per my thesis that, uh, that, that wrestling really is sort of in line with the ancient you know, epic more so than it is in line with modern storytelling techniques. Because you think of Walter White, like that's someone with very modern, postmodern, man versus self, man versus God, man versus no God kind of conflicts going on. You know what I mean? Whereas like Hulk Hogan is trying to beat Andre the Giant to get the title and to, you know, uh, just to, to, to show that he is the best wrestler in the WWF and that no one can step to him kind of thing. Like that's more like uh, Jason in Argonautica. Like he, he's got to go to caucus to get the golden fleece because it's a treasure on the other side of the world. And he's got to go get it because adventure. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's much yeah. closer to wrestling storytelling, especially kind of like 1980s, like Hulk Hogan, as you're saying that like, it, it's very similar. It's like, because motivation, because the genre tropes. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think that's the other thing is that they're, I mean, this goes back to being heavily structured. They're very genre. They, when we talk about like a thing that might be boring to us when we read it now, I assume when Shakespeare was happening, like people that knew the stories were like, oh, haha, what a clever adaptation of blah. But like the people, the, the people on the ground, the groundlings, I think that's what they were called, right? Um, mm-hmm. They were just like, holy shit, this is mind blowing. I've never seen blah before. Like <laughs> that blah shit you were just talking about. I, I haven't seen that. I've only seen this. And this is fucking awesome. Well, Shakespeare's kind of an on-the-nose one to cite because it's interesting because, like, today, like I was saying earlier, we think of Shakespeare as being, like, fairly inaccessible. But, like, Shakespeare was a very audience-friendly writer and that, like, he made sure that there were jokes of all levels of complexity and accessibility, like, in what he wrote. And I think that there were – you could go to a Shakespeare play – and not necessarily be paying attention to the plot and still have a good time. Like he was consciously trying to write that way where like you could just be listening to the jokes, even if you didn't care about the other stuff, like Romeo and Juliet is still just highly entertaining. If you're watching like the, the stuff with the, the friar and the nurse, like that's funny shit. That's good stuff. Uh, but anyway, but on the other hand, I think like 
the epics are are kind of designed in a way that like they want you to pay attention to the whole story. They want you to like lean in and 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 see every little trial and tribulation the character has to go through. Wrestling is caught in the middle. It feels like you get bogged down in the trials and tribulations and sometimes or like you always point out there's this problem of stakes where like the stakes are really, really low and suddenly they feel artificially uh, really high. Part of the brilliance of Shakespeare was that that he he wrote in this way where you could like half pay attention and it was still really rewarding. Wrestling or people who chronically defend wrestling are always telling people that that's what you should do, right? That you should sh just shut off your brain and like watch the show. Wrestling's caught in between. There's some cues that are telling you to think that way. And there's some cues that are telling you that things are really, really important and that you should be paying attention really closely. You know what I mean? So I think part of why people are are frustrated with wrestling sub storytelling sometimes it's because it's it's maybe caught between the two models yeah and i i think that's part of the problem that wrestling has with the idea that it is it is kind of forced by the nature of it what we talked about a self-consciously long idea of things not always getting to work out because somebody gets hurt somebody dies somebody quits there's a bunch of different reasons stories don't get told and what you see is, and why things change suddenly, in the, because we don't know what happens backstage, but since it's this meta-narrative, that has to become part of the meta-narrative. Whatever the, and the, the result of whatever happens backstage, however that manifests itself in front of a camera, is what we have to accept, quote-unquote, as canon for the story. So when you talk about the stories that like there's very few stories in wrestling that like really worked out all the way through i i can i can't think of one that really really worked all the way through because of the nature of it that like i would say wrestle like wrestlemania 4 to wrestlemania 6 that was a pretty good stretch um but he, or, uh, but even then, I would say that, like, Hogan ruins it by not leaving the ring the right way. And we also found out a week ago that he wanted to turn heel. And he that was originally when he was going to be Hollywood Hulk Hogan. I feel like wrestling, because, I mean, for I am sure that Homer got drunk and said, oh, I, I actually, the original fucking version of that story had blah. Like, I think we are hurt in terms of our ability to uh, like lose ourselves in the moments of what we're watching and for the, what we're watching to tell a full, like almost mystery story where there's, there's different clues that lead to different things and different instances. We just don't have access to the totality of the story. And I, I think that's where it lose. That's why it's stuck in the middle is because it's required to both be real and fake at the same time. We're like, the the odyssey can be entirely fake the entire time yeah i mean i think that speaks to a challenge of technology that like wrestling has run up against over the last 20 or 30 years that like traditional storytelling was clearly always fully fiction because there were no motion pictures you know what i mean that like or or that people may be told kind of slightly tall tales or i'll call them lies i guess that they passed off as real but like uh, a narrative was clearly a narrative, but I think wrestling in its connection to the early days of TV and functioning really as sport on TV, uh, like we talked about in some previous episodes, that really kind of 
blurred that line fundamentally and, and in a way that wrestling is is still kind of reaping the consequences of this idea that like they tried to create a sort of athletic realism or a verisimilitude of of athletic realism but then the technology evolved again and then information about what was really going on spread way more readily and now they have the problem of once again having insisted on a certain model for x number of years and now being told you that they want to move it in kind of a different direction, but they're not really articulating clearly what that direction is. And then every individual fan, thanks to social media, has their freaking vision and their blog and their podcast, you know? <laughs> so, so it's interesting that it's, it's, a, it's a self-created problem within the wrestling business, but one that was created when they were taking advantage of a huge technological advance uh, that would ultimately be threatened by another technological advance that they couldn't possibly foresee. The connection for me between athletic realism and literary realism is is that idea that like you kind of either direction you go, you're always going to be sacrificing something later on. I, I think that's why in a lot of ways, epic storytelling doesn't have the cachet it once did I, I think we kind of now see things that have happened that are so fantastical um, in so many things that like you have to up that part. You're not there's a difference between stretching beyond the boundaries of literary realism and completely overtaking them and making it such that like you're existing in an entirely different plane of existence. And I think that's like wrestling's ultimate problem is it can't really exist in a different plane of existence. Well, it, it's so fascinating because like in the epics, the gods are literally characters, you know what I mean? Who who interact and who, who other than the fact that they are gods and have the magical powers of gods act exactly the same way as the people, you know what I mean? And, and it's funny that like in wrestling over the last couple of years to, to circle back to a conversation we had last week about like the big super shows that it's like now they have like the hall of fame and like they have like the legends and stuff. And it, it's interesting to see how like they are trying to create this alternate plane where like the legends can still kind of walk among us as long as you don't look like look too carefully at how good a job they're doing at it. You know what I mean? It, it almost seems like sometimes they're trying to create that alternate plane where, where the gods can walk with the other characters. It's called WW2K19. Uh, it Nick, is Nick, they're not a sponsor. They're not a sponsor. <laughs> not. I think that that's one of the ways in which literary epics have actually like turned into video games, right? We no longer see narrative epics in movies like John Carter of Mars and shit like that. All the, that doesn't do well, but Fallout and stuff, these epic journeys of these characters that we actually get to live as is now what we see in entertainment in terms of the epic hasn't gone away. It's just completely changed the form so we can literally embody it. Yeah, I think the epic was kind of always the ultimate aspirational journey. Like you said, they, they've kind of fallen out of fashion. And I think one of the reasons they used to be so popular is that they were like a really exciting adventure story if you were like a little English boy in a cloistered private school, you know, where you were beaten and hadn't seen your parents for six months kind of thing. <laughs> and, and, and so I think that part of why the epic stories had such resonance in like the 19th and 20th centuries and, and, and held such a special place in kind of the literary canon for so long is because they, they were these like adventure stories with these kind of aspirational 
cool characters in them, but they were like, they were still fun to read and also respected as literature. Like it felt like you were getting away with something like that was like the comic book that was somehow considered high literature. And I agree with you that like now we have like comic books themselves and video games that really kind of fill that place in people's hearts better and in a way where they feel like they have more ownership of it over it and can kind of you know skip the boring parts without feeling like they're losing anything yeah and that that's an important part is that wrestling and epic stories like have boring parts you kind of just have to do sorry but this guy just has to win this number one contenders match uh, you can just skip over it, but that's not a good idea. Because like, I w- sorry, everybody, we have to do Survivor Series matches. We know you, we know they're terrible. We know you don't like them. We know nobody gets over, but the thing's called Survivor Series, and there was a big tag match at the first one, so we we got to do a big tag match. Tune in next month. Yeah, it's great. I'm super excited. I love the Survivor Series because there's only a one sole survivor on each team, and sometimes there's more than one sole survivor, but they're the sole survivors. I can only think of uh, the Andre the Giant. I am going to be the survivor. <laughs> that was like very Arnoldy or very terrible Arnoldy. But yeah, his his one. I am going to be the survivor promo. Why is he Arnold again? God damn it! Just a <laughs> that was even Arnold. more Arnold. At least the other one was French Arnold. <laughs> Arnold. <laughs> uh, so we wanted to uh, talk about a couple of the different styles of, or styles might not be the right word, but some of the the more direct connections between specific epics and uh, different periods, basically, or or styles of wrestling. Uh, In particular, I know you wanted to talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, which which you describe as profoundly sad on a lot of levels, parentheses, plot summary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it, it, so the Epic of Gilgamesh is like basically the oldest quote unquote text or like literary text that we really know about, or at least that's what it says in uh, in books. I don't know if that's actually true. That's what it says in books. You can't trust those all the time. But anyway, the Epic of Gilgamesh is really a story that's, it's about a wrestling turn in a certain way. It's about a king who's a really bad guy, like in fundamentally really gross ways, like like non-consensual sex with people on their wedding night ways and stuff. And he's just like a really bad person. And so the, the powers that be that gods, they're going to like strike him down. So they send, uh, they, they like create this beast or this beast man for him to do battle with. And he and the beast man find respect for each other and become friends. And he like softens throughout this process. And then he and the beast man are buddies. And then the beast man gets killed and he's super sad about it. And, and then he also learns that he has this horrific fear of death. So he literally like goes to the end of the world, to the you know the other side of the earth to try to find the secret of eternal life so he won't die because he's like so scared of death and stuff. And and he gets there and the guy basically tells him, like, no, it doesn't work that way. I, I can't share the secret of eternal life if you go home. End of story. <laughs> I mean, uh, the journey is the destination, though. So it, I guess. Is, it is. It is. It really, the story is not about what he actually wants the story is about him going from being like a textbook terrible person to like a sensitive guy who you're like rooting for in some weird cathartic way by the end of the story like it's very much pro wrestling though it's like he's a bad guy he meets someone who you know he sees himself in and his relationship to that person kind of softens him and then they have you know shared enemies who they beat together and it really is like 
those are those are beats in a turn, you know, over a couple of months of wrestling television. And it really plays out in literally the oldest text we have. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's funny for me in particular, this idea of our compulsive need to find the best in bad people. Like we want to validate their existence and by extension our existence by like trying to find the goodness in them and in some cases i guess in the case of gilgamesh uh there's some good in him right i think that has also hurt wrestling in the sense that the idea that you can do whatever you want if you're a heel makes it the uh, other swing of that right much scarier for me like the idea that we can the point is almost to have these people be as bad as possible so that we can eventually swing them back to being redeemable and it's like but they know they did terrible stuff gilgamesh was was the a a a rapist right i think that's a fair way to put what he did or yes yes i would say yeah and we're like at the end like oh well he learned his lesson like and i understand that like the times are different and the idea of women's rights was not as uh, important on the political agenda when this was written, but you have people simultaneously saying, Oh, it's okay. They're healed. They can do terrible shit. They can bring up people's dead parents, all that stuff. But what happens when they can call, they can call their wives fat? Yeah. But what happens when you decide that you're going to turn that person baby face? I, I feel like what Gilgamesh does is kind of set the stage for this idea that anyone can be redeemed. And I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. It's really the whole deathbed conversion problem, right? Like, I guess, it, you know, at various, uh, at various points in time that we, we've either been uh, way too trusting in that kind of thing, or maybe like too cynical at other times. I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a spectrum and I don't know, but that, that that's definitely a problem generally, I guess. But it's, but like you say, Maybe it stems all the way back to like here in Gilgamesh, like so much of our storytelling is like about redemption because on some level we want to think that that's truly possible, that someone really can go from being a bad person to being a good person in a way that like the bad stuff they did is no longer as big of a deal. Like I think people actually do want to believe that on a certain level, but like in practice, just look around you. Yeah, and I think that's the fundamental idea of Jesus Christ. Like, he redeemed all of humanity by sacrificing himself for our sins. Like, that is something we're a huge fan of. That we're like, two thumbs up for you redeeming us. Because redemption is the thing we want more than anything else, I, I feel like. I feel like, in particular... The idea of redemption allows us to sit in our worst impulses. And I, I think that's like, again, something that, that wrestling never really learned how to balance, which hurts the long term. Now, when you have all of this evidence for it, like, not that there wasn't evidence in the beginning of uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh about what he did in the totality of the time of his existence within the context of that story, you can understand how in those 40 year, however long the Epic of Gilgamesh is, I don't know it, it, in, in terms of the timeline, like how far from his original starting place of doing what he did, he ends up where with like wrestling, I can just go back and show you a video of the time that Triple H tried to have sex with a blow-up doll that he was in a funeral home that he was pretending was the dead girlfriend he claims that Kane killed. 
Yeah, definitely. Again, I think we're running into a a weakness within narrative storytelling that is being exposed by technology. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. No. And I think that's that you can see by looking at it this way, like why wrestling, the problems of wrestling and I think this is the theme are not necessarily wrestling's fault, but they speak to the difficulties of translating an epic storytelling structure over the actual existence of a human being over a course of years. But at the same time, the ways in which those two things almost inherently have to go together, because it's the only way you can tell that kind of story. And this is a, it's both tech technology is the overall reason, right? But I think part of it is that technology, especially like social media, modern social media humanizes other people and, and anonymizes them at the same time. But I think humanizing when you have the right idea going into, let's say Twitter or Facebook or something like that, like you're there to meet people and like express yourself in a way that doesn't hurt other people uh, intentionally. Right. Um, And because of that, we have these massive shifts in the culture of culture right, of this idea of what's okay to tell a story about in culture and what's not, and who gets to tell which stories. And I think with, um, because a lot of people, um, a lot of literary nerds, sorry, Dave, uh, know the Epic of Gilgamesh, but everybody knows the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? I think that's, that's a fair I, a fair thing to say is that like uh, Epic of Gilgamesh is, people have heard of it. Right. But I feel like basically everybody other than me is read either because I, I may have been assigned. I didn't do homework in high school. So I, I really honestly have no clue if we my class ever read it. But uh, like from what I understand, the Odyssey would not like work in today's world for a bunch of different reasons. But in particular, like the perspective by through which it views the world and especially women. Yeah, definitely. I think in its original context and and up until pretty recently in history, I think people have kind of read that story, like mostly rooting for Odysseus and like mostly just like living in the moment and and, and taking it in and enjoying it, not overthinking things. But like, it's hard not to read it now and like feel extreme sympathy for Odysseus's wife. Yeah, he's away from home and his family for, for 20 plus years. So is she. And like, she is fighting off all these suitors who want to take his place because she's holding out hope for him. And here he is just like wasting whole years sleeping with other women on their islands before he can get motivated to take the next step home. You know what I mean? Like, that's one of those where like, when you read that story now, it's hard to be like, wow, this guy's kind of a dick. And like at the end, when he just steps right back, he doesn't just get his wife back, literally his wife and he rejoin and then the gods restore their youth so they can make up for lost time. It's like, you know, not only does he get to have his cake and eat it too, the whole story, it's like then at the end, he like gets a whole second cake baked right in front of him because like not only is he back with his wife, it's like they're sexually restored to their original vigor. It's like this very clear like male fantasy of, of, like I said, being on this dangerous adventure and having dangerous sex along the way, but then still getting to, you know, snuggle up to the uh, fire at home. And we're two guys. Just, you know, uh, we both identify, I should say, as, as, as men. We were taught from a very early idea that the heroes of the story were the heroes of the story and they could do nothing wrong. And since they looked like us, there was no way we were going to fucking question it. And I think 
that this speaks to that idea that from the very beginnings of what we were talking about, and this, and this is also the case with Gilgamesh, we do not, the, what you're seeing now in terms of the women's revolution or the evolution pay-per-view is like not just an evolution. What it is is a fundamental, and, and I hate to, it is actually a revolution. It is this fundamental paradigm shift in the way that we tell stories to each other about things. Like we have for so long centered our narratives around men and in particular, usually white men that there's become this warping of what it means to tell a story. And I I think that wrestling is just now grappling with this in a way, and, and, and not just wrestling, a lot of, Different mediums are now grappling with woman-led shows, women-run uh, shows, women-produced shows. That is not something you saw until the last couple of years is that we now – technology has actually benefited in that way. This this idea of telling not necessarily epic stories in the, in the Homeric, Homeric sense – Homeric sense, not not just epics in the Homeric sense, but like stories about human beings that we just never got told because in society, especially American society, there is this idea of masculinity meaning these things and own, and men having to be masculine and project these certain things and women having to be feminine and project these certain things. And I think men and women now can project different things and they don't get categorized as masculine and feminine in the same way. No, uh, John Milton wrote Paradise Lost in the 1660s and like he was very much inspired. He like kind of wanted to create an epic that was exactly in the tradition of of like Homer and Virgil and stuff, but he wanted it grounded in kind of, you know, what was for him kind of the modern Christian world. But he explicitly began to like play with what you're talking about. And he clearly had an understanding of like the epic especially in these sort of like classical grandiose stories as being like really oppressively masculine because adam and eve are two characters in paradise lost and like eve upon meeting adam like one of her first realizations is that she's smarter than him and like her second realization immediately thereafter is that she has to act like she's dumber than him. <laughs> yeah like seriously that the, the, this and i mean and milton was perhaps by today's standards, maybe trans or maybe, you know, in, in, a, in today's time would maybe identify differently than he did in his own. But, but I think that that was someone, you know, even who by our standards is a misogynist, <laughs> you know what I mean? 300 years plus years later, like even he kind of saw, he was like, man, there's something about these stories that it's about like, it's about reinforcing this kind of like weird, like male sex and violence thing. Yeah, well, it, what it it does is, and you see it in wrestling too. That like there, in particular, I think of Hulk Hogan. Like Hogan's interaction with Savage in the the build up to WrestleMania Five is very like like something that could really ruin someone's struggling marriage. Yeah, no, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it without sexualizing in a way that seems absurd. But uh, um, I think what Hogan. Hogan's character is essentially saying, I can have your girl anytime I want. If you don't start treating her right, I probably will end up with her without ever saying that. And it's because he defined the way that it, but the way that it's framed is that Elizabeth doesn't deserve him, but you know who does Hulk Hogan? Cause he's an upstanding man that represents these certain things and, and, and can never do any wrong. And you have a, a mad, a hysterical, if you will, 
macho man portraying a lot of the things that especially at the time and before then were commonly associated with women right like like jealousy and things like that uh, and and hysterics is the reason i specifically use that word that it kind of frames hogan as this masculine icon and macho man is less of a man period yeah definitely i mean it, it's the kind of thing that could really fuck with someone's already struggling marriage. <laughs> I love, I love Liz, but not like that. Just, you know, like I love her, like a like lover, but not like, what the fuck was that? You knew what you were doing. Ah, oh, God. I, I, every time we talk about this fucking feud, I get angry at the fact that they treated Macho Man who until the end was probably on the fence as a bad guy. Hogan's the bad guy. Hogan's always the bad guy. Sorry. I, I, I just love we recently talked about how they did basically, you know, the the Ric Flair angle with Elizabeth. And he was doing the whole like, oh, I don't know. I've, I've been with your wife or whatever. And then that context, like Flair is clearly the heel and Macho Man is clearly the baby face. But a couple of years later, Macho Man's like, hey, I think you're sleeping with my wife. And that makes him the heel at Hogan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the magic of Hulk Hogan. Yeah, no, exactly. That they can, the Gilgamesh of just like, I can do whatever the fuck I want because I'm a Hulk Hogan. I am therefore eternally redeemable. And I am, because I'm eternally redeemable, anything I do or anything within the bounds of what I've done previously for the next guy. Not the next person, but the next guy, especially the next guy that looks like me, that is the breadth of which he has to do whatever the fuck he wants. Like we never shrunk the like that that uh, you called it literary realism, but the literary realism of the ways in which consequences come to people, right? Like they almost live these consequence free, especially in the case of Odysseus, like these consequence free existences because that's what we want that's really what we want is these consequence free existences where we can do whatever we want and because we framed or we i should say but because the values of masculinity were framed in such a way that was basically like being a man meant you could do whatever the fuck you want and it perpetuated into um when when was the kavanaugh <laughs> like that it, it continues to this day yeah definitely and it's interesting because like uh, you know the, the 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 same educational institutions that fought so hard to kind of codify the Western literary canon and keep certain stuff in and certain stuff out. I mean, those are the same institutions that are producing people who go into positions of power. You know? Yeah, yeah. They created the structure of the world and then are perpetuating it through like. Uh, <laughs> epic storytelling <laughs> part of that is this is idea that we feed into the stories that we've heard and feel comfortable with and i think it scares us it scares a certain segment of people so much when we exist outside of that story that any attempt to grow the 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 kind of storytelling you're trying to do are pushed back against by whether it be institutions that are trying to preserve a canon or wrestling fans that are trying to be gatekeepers. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think wrestling is kind of seeing it from both sides right now, you know, where there definitely there's like the push and the pull and so much factionality within the fans. And then there's also the like 
the honest internal push for change. And then there's also the like uh, dishonest kind of trying to make a buck off of the climate kind of thing going on. Like there's, there's so many motivations and intentions and there's, there's the, there's such a war going on for, for the heart of professional wrestling, which is ironic because I think it's a heartless business. Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) it's about getting over that's that's what it is and i think what you see in these these epics over and over again is that as long as the the gods were on your side and again in odysseus's case is a case literally like everything you could do you by definition could do no wrong and i think that we like determined who was god was on the side of in a way that like you see continuously, I mean, throughout history in general, but like in these stories as like, if you were to reframe the stories from a different perspective, that hubris, that idea that God's will was to have them succeed is like what actually made them bad people. And if you're looking back at it, right? I, I think like, if you look at what Vince McMahon was doing, there's no way he didn't think what he was doing was right. But you look back back and you're like, no, what you did was really terrible. And even now you can admit you did some shitty things. When you were in it, you were just going. Because you thought you were on the side of God. Yeah, certainly. I think like uh, the Aeneid by Virgil is like the ultimate, uh, if Vince McMahon secretly wrote any of these epics in a previous life, it was was definitely the Aeneid. He was Virgil. I, I, I have no doubt of it. When Virgil wrote the Aeneid, he was intentionally trying to mythologically connect uh, Rome of his time and Greece of a couple of years before. Like he literally crafted this whole story about how, you know, that the Romans are really the descendants of the last uh, survivors of Troy and that, you know, they were spared uh, when, you know, Odysseus came up with that whole stupid Trojan horse plan or whatever. That, you know, that, that Odysseus is like spirited away and that he, you know, pulls together a crew and that he goes on this long journey and that he gets to Italy. And with the blessing of the gods, he beats all the native Italian people to take over Italy and start Rome. You know what I mean? Like, it's very much a propaganda piece, uh, the Aeneid is, and that it's, it's both trying to co-opt the Greek artistic tradition to kind of lend credence to the brutality of Rome, which is something the Romans did all the time. Uh, but it also is definitely supporting a certain political and nationalistic agenda about, yeah, 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 that the, the Romans should be in charge of Italy and everything else that we can grab because, you know, we we have the blessings of the gods kind of thing. Yeah, and I see. I think that's something you see a lot of uh, in terms of the having God on your side in the in the like way that wrestling and and in Vince McMahon is particular in particular have have framed, especially in the eighties, wrestling through this intentionally nationalistic lens. Like there's there's this like inherent jingoism or patriotism, depending on where your line is, that is inherent in like a lot of the more popular performers for Vince McMahon. And I think that you saw that, especially like I I think of Hacksaw Jim Duggan, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like Hacksaw Jim Duggan had the flag and therefore like he was going to win. In the 80s, I think that Vince McMahon was very much trying to sell the idea of Hulkamania, you know, uh, of this kind of like larger than life feeling that, that, that was built around Hulk Hogan. He was trying to kind of market that. Uh, in the same way that Virgil was trying to market Rome, you know, was trying to say like, hey, 
look at this. It's connected to this huge tradition. That's why he like, you know, you get the whole Andre the Giant bit at Reno WrestleMania three, kind of connecting him to the whole historic tradition of the seventies. And he, he takes out the kind of, you know, big unbeatable quote unquote guy of that era and so on and so forth. Like Vince was definitely borrowing these same storytelling techniques to like Virgil create both this sort of artificial art and artificial legitimacy of, of culture. And I think if you want to talk about now, we see, you know, the, the brandification of the WWE and all of the WWE's efforts are very much to kind of get over those letters and the idea that the company really stands for something in the same way that kind of Virgil was saying, you know, Hey, Rome really stands for something and is, is really legitimate as well. So I, I see a lot of Virgil in Vince McMahon and not Virgil as in uh, either Dusty Rhodes or Mike Jones, but Virgil is in Virgil. And you keep mentioning how he's trying to like fit into this larger Roman narrative about uh, their own greatness, right? It reminds me of Reagan, like the Reagan era of America, this renewed interest in America as this shining city on a hill for white people is like, is to me what the 1980s WWF was actually about was this like resurgence of a very specific type of nationalism. No, it's, it's hilarious because like, what's the first thing Ronald Reagan did? He beat the Iranians. What's the first thing Hulk Hogan did? He beat an Iranian or an Iran. Yeah, no, and I don't, it's not a coincidence. Like we, we talked about this all the way back in our first episode. Uh, he beat Sheik in 1984, five or six years after the Iranian hostage crisis. Like they had been far enough removed from that idea that they could use the shit that Reagan had done uh, in terms of like when it started and stuff like that through, and then was just immediately like, I let them go. <laughs> and it, and they did. And this became this narrative about Reagan's ability to get things done. And I, I feel like they're, they're just very, that was what Hogan beating the Sheik was, but it was far enough m removed from the reality and the horror of the situation that they could just use it without thinking twice about it. Yeah, definitely. And it's also funny, like the, there the the irony or maybe lack of irony if you think of it from a wrestling perspective but it's funny that like in real life that story was a lie anyway like that the, the like it had already been negotiated and they were just kind of putting a false hold on it to make it seem like reagan was solving it you know what i mean so it's it's funny that in pure wrestling they were they were trying to imitate sincerely something that was already you know a, a big carny con yeah of, well i mean that's what professional electoral politics is like <laughs> it's a big con um and and you see like the i think more so than any other form of it, this this epic storytelling that nationalistic idea has the shortest both the longest and shortest shelf life it is the one that can burn out the quickest i guess but well is always you're always able to kind of like pick it back up after a time like it can be gone to the say, the amount of times that you need it yeah it's funny because like people always talk about wrestling being a cyclical thing it's like well nationalism is kind of also a cyclical thing seemingly and uh, there have definitely been many many times when those cycles have lined up to the great you know financial profit uh, of wrestling <laughs> amen brother um and i i also think uh, th this is an interesting concept uh, was the idea of Romanness, re representing Romanness as it almost reminds me of the way that like and this is something we talked about last week with Dusty, uh, 
the idea of getting over sports entertainment as what wrestling should be in the same way that you got Romanness over as the idea of what a person should be a Roman. Definitely. And I think there's a clear analog too, with like Vince kind of clearing out the territories and, and trying to craft his narrative in a way where he could feel good about that. Even though, as you said earlier, he probably knew he was doing some crummy stuff and like defending the whole idea of Romanness of like the country that's perpetually you know, expanding uh, its borders and stuff and saying like, no, 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 like we're supposed to be here. We we showed up here and we, we took it fair and square and, and the God said it was okay. You mentioned Paradise Lost and uh, I know Paradise Lost from Seven because I, I am not well read at all, but they mentioned it a couple of times in Seven and to me, and and this is something you mentioned in in explaining it to me and in the notes that like that 90s style of wrestling is very like it, it reminds me a lot in the same way of, of seven in the sense that it's this idea of a meta narrative of like like you said of the previous it, it's like a, a it's postmodern that's the word i was looking for sorry it's it's postmodern in a in a way that like Though in its era, it would obviously not be called postmodern, but it kind of acknowledges in a meta sense the kind of stories that we tell ourselves about the way the world works and like who's to root for and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, John Milton was kind of the original or one of the kind of OG angry nerds. Like, no joke. You know what I mean? Like like I said, he, he was someone who he was very uh interested in creating something that was an epic that honored the style of of the traditional older ones but he was definitely also kind of exploring the space and and trying to break through boundaries and and in one of the real kind of key ways that he did that is it's it's a huge cool heel story like it's a story about the fall of man from the bible but like arguably like satan is the hero of the story He's certainly the point of view character for mo- for the biggest chunks of it, you know? So he's dealing with the, the kind of meta in that he's already intentionally exploring the space of a well-established genre. And he has like incantations to the muse at the beginning of the different books like they do in the old, you know, he's very clearly tra- doing the thing where he's like nudging you in the ribs and he's like, see, see, I'm doing it just like Homer used to do. But at the same time, like the hero is transparently a villain and Adam, like our, our protogenitor, the first man or whatever, is like kind of a dullard moron. You know what I like? He's, he's very clearly exploring the space in, in the way that like ECW and the NWO and Vince Russo were, were doing some really subversive genre-breaking things. But I guess I would argue that Milton maybe didn't break the genre <laughs> in quite the same way that Vince Russo did. But definitely that, you know, he wrote an epic that was a transgressive epic in the way that like 90s wrestling was transgressive, not just from quote unquote mainstream culture, but from the genre that it was. And I think it's important that you note that he didn't exactly, he tried to, right? But he pushed on the, the against the like boundaries of it, but he didn't quite kind of break through. It's funny because he took it back. He, he wrote an, a sequel epic called Paradise Regained, which was very much a traditional story about, you know, Jesus Christ is the white knight on the horse coming and saving everybody. So it's interesting that even he seemed to kind of understand that, like, 
he was he was nervous of the perception that he had broken the genre or that he had transgressed maybe too far. And it, it kind of reminds me of the ways in which, and this is less uh, intentional, I think, on the part of, like, I think Milton, I mean, you would know, but it sounds, based on the way you're describing it, that Milton said, fuck, I may have screwed up things a little bit too much. Where I think at the NWO, they became obsessed with the idea that, like, it, they maybe they were the good guys. I, I Not that they thought that they were the good guys in the story, but that they were the ones that were the heroes in the meta sense of the story they were telling. That, like, they as cool heels are basically the new baby faces. And it's like, no, you're cool heels. You're not baby faces. You are not baby faces. And they they kind of just went into the wall. No, we're the stars of the show. We're the therefore we have to be the baby faces. That's also kind of analogous to Milton's own biography because with, without getting into it too deep, during the English Civil War, he strongly stumped for Cromwell and I think at one point was Oliver Cromwell's private secretary or or some kind of a minister, like one of his main administrators and stuff. And like part of what he is teasing out in Paradise Lost, like through the voice of, of Satan, like is like, is it excusable or can I continue with my life? And can I feel respectable about the fact that I helped lead a revolution that culminated in a regicide and then ultimately failed and we had to bring back the king? Like he's someone who is quite the opposite of, we'll say, Hall and Nash in that case. Like Milton was was like transgressive and out there and a cool heel. And then in the second half of his life, he kind of like retreated back like unto, onto himself. You know, it, it, he very much washed his hands of it in the way that, like you say, I think that some of those guys, uh, the wrestlers are, are kind of proud of themselves or they, they saw themselves as the baby face and they still do. Whereas Milton saw himself as the baby face when he was doing heelish stuff. And then he really was kind of like brought low and had to work that out the whole remaining part of his life. That's the ultimate failure of the kind of narrative storytelling where the people in the story have control on some level over what happens in the story. In the meta fictional sense, Milton has control over his literary persona by creating what he was saying, what his fundamental ideas about humanity are. And if you like uh, subscribe to like the great man theory, because he wrote this thing, therefore he has should be listened to not in just the context of this thing that he created, but in a larger context of, well, I mean, he's John Milton. He wrote paradise lost. And I, I think that like, that's what happens with a lot of, in a weird way of promoters is they, I didn't don't, or bookers don't, don't you know, WrestleMania three? Like I don't have to ever do anything right ever again. Like any of the five people who claim the NWO is their idea. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's like they felt as though they could change the narrative about themselves through the use of their work. And it leaves this kind, it actually ends up, diminishing in meaningful ways their legacy. People don't go Paradise Regained is really like the, the the great Milton work. But like the fact that he did it and we can talk about it and say, no, he kind of turned tail on this really interesting story changes the narrative if you understand the larger context. And I feel like it was the same way with like 
late looking at late period WCW, you can't help but diminish Hall, Nash, and in particular Hogan's legacy because of what they did. And they thought that they were really like getting the best of the deal because they didn't understand that like, no, when you do that, when you sell yourself out, that that is what hurts the ability to tell this, to create this epic narrative around yourself in a long-term sense. Like Hogan tries to, but he never quite like you listen to Hogan tell stories and he has to embellish the stories he already did at this point to make himself seem relevant to now. And it's because he always constantly tried to put himself over. So everything's framed as now we understand he's just trying to put himself over. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, I think it's funny with some of the the recent Hogan stuff where like you, especially uh, post uh, sex tape N word scandal uh, like when you see like the Andre the Giant documentary and stuff that was on HBO and stuff, how Hogan's kind of moved on to this other phase in his career where he's figured out like now the way to put himself over is to like be fake humble and tell these stories that are not super factual, that are filled with effusive praise. Like he's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to mythologize other people. And as long as I seem like a cool, grateful, you know, grounded guy who can tell great stories about other people, like then I'm going to get back into people's hearts. But I, I guess that's another story for another day. <laughs> no, and I, I, but I think it's important that, that, that if I tell these stories, you'll take me back. Right. And it's like, no, you already made your decisions. You can't go back. And I, I think, again, it goes back to this, this larger idea of always being able to, and it's something that, that's held onto us for basically as long as the Epic of Gilgamesh, as you said, is probably the oldest text that we have, like uh, beyond like receipts for shit. Um, and I, I think that's part of like our fundamental core as people is we want, we want to redeem people. And, and wrestling struggles with that in both a textual and metatextual sense on every level because it is this living, epic kind of long, drawn-out, epic kind of storytelling that just inherently lends itself to uh, like this weird, now postmodern, revisionalist while it's happening and then after it happens – you have to then look at it through the larger context of everything. It's this like constant checking in with the narrative so that we can like frame it relative to our understanding of other narratives. What he said. <laughs> Sorry. I, I like the word narrative. Uh, no, no. I've said, I've said narrative a lot on this episode as well. <laughs> okay. So now that I've solved storytelling, I have the question that I've been thinking about this entire episode, which is which wrestling character, not necessarily the person, but wrestling character in that larger than life mythos kind of sense would do the best, survive the best, fit the best in a epic story of this kind. Like one of these stories that we've talked about specifically. Well, when we talk about these epic narratives, I mean, we're talking about, you know, really serious obstacles the characters have to overcome and so they have to be you know just super capable super smart super physically fit super sexy so before i can even answer your question i have to make a little shout out nick to someone incredibly sexy a true sexy wizard and that would be our new patron mr darren jackson 
Welcome to the Sexy Wizard Club, sir. Any words of wisdom, Nick? Um, hi, Darren. You're the sexiest wizard I know. And Nick knows a lot of sexy wizards. I believe three. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I'm a wash in sexy wizards, to be honest. But Darren may really be, and I mean, I don't want to take anything away from anybody else, but I mean, Darren may be, in some ways, he may be the man who first sewed the sexy wizard cloak from the the stars and the heavens you know it is like you know the uh, the big long description of achilles shield in uh, in the iliad i think that darren uh, when he was creating the original sexy wizard cloak it, it must have been as impressive as that anyway the reason i say he <laughs> created the original sexy wizard cloak is because Darren is really one of the reasons that this show is existing and that, that, that Nick and I are in 2018 so deep into wrestling. When I met Darren, I was a severely lapsed wrestling fan, as they say uh, these days. I, I had not been watching wrestling since 2002. This was like 2006, 2007-ish. And uh, he's, he, along with you, is someone who, who dragged me back in and we watched like every pay-per-view together for like a year or two straight. Uh, so my hat has been off to uh, Darren since day one. Uh, but now that he's giving us his money, I mean, my my flames of passion are, are fueled more brightly than ever before. And I will also say he has uh, an adorable child who my wife wanted to kidnap at your wedding. <laughs> Yeah. So welcome to the Sexy Wizard Army, Darren. Thank you so much for your patronage. And let me use this as an opportunity to invite others to be almost as sexy as Darren by moseying over to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W and pledging a little dough to us. If you pledge just $1 per month, I'll give you a shout out just like this one. If you pledge us two, you have access to all our notes, including those follow-up files that I pulled together. That'll definitely be a necessary supplement this week with all the nerdy <laughs> literary chatter that uh, we've been making. So join Darren in the sexy wizard army at patreon.com slash H W E T W. Anyway, Nick, to answer your question of, of which wrestling character I think would really, uh, you know, be kind of suited for the epic. I, I think I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to point backwards and uh, that would be Dusty Rhodes. Or, or do you want me to pick someone from, from today's scene? No, ever. In the history of wrestling. In the history of wrestling? I guess Dusty Rhodes. I mean, Dusty Rhodes has some of the problems uh, that we were talking about, where I think there were times where he was kind of intentionally trying to mythologize himself, and he was trying to get every little detail right to make sure that he looked as good as possible. So he, he had the problems of the epic, but he also really had the greatness of the epic, you know, that he was a character who at the same time was, was highly aspirational, but also highly real, who, who, you know, stood for a very few kind of core values, but at the same time was intriguing enough that you were willing to go on a long journey for him. And uh, as we've said, <laughs> he's someone who you're willing to forgive, right? Like we talked about in last week's show, he's someone who, you know, there, there were ups and downs in his career. There were times where along the journey to greatness, he did some things that weren't so great. And he's, he's someone who's been uh, largely lionized over the last couple of years. So uh, he's got that quality of the epic as well. So Dusty Rhodes is epic. Dave. Yes. Dusty Rhodes is assholes. <laughs> yes. I had to send you, I had to send you that, uh, 
that, that video of Ron Garvin saying that just that I found in my research last week when I was doing the follow-up files. It was too good. My favorite, my new favorite French Canadian singular plural inversion. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> best two roads is assholes. <laughs> um, I, we use him a lot, but if you I, say I, Dean Ambrose, I swear to God. <laughs> That's who I was going to say. Yes, do it. <laughs> no, he – and the, the, you – I love you. I, I, I can say it. I feel comfortable saying that. I love you. You're my brother. You actually did once argue pretty vociferously during a difference of opinion about Dean Ambrose's relative um, – attractiveness in terms of being a star, like his potential to be a star. And I think that is this idea that he, the one thing you can say about his character is that he is, even when he's disappointing, compelling, he propels things forward because he exists as a as a and not an agent necessarily of chaos, but not in any way lawful. Does that make sense? Like I think he would be an interesting person to throw into this world of, especially like the honestly like the Odyssey. Like you would want to see someone like Dean Ambrose in the Odyssey. Uh, though the fact that he's cheating on Renee Young would make it much sadder than it already is, but. I, I feel like he in particular has this kind of all-encompassing his character I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. Even his total divas character seems like he is someone who when you construct a character there there sometimes is not this base of the character and I think he is almost entirely he is a power bottom in terms of a character. He really drives the narrative forward just by virtue of his his presence and I think that would be an interesting like he, it's not that he's the best or the most powerful but he is the one that if you were to he's Deadpool is what he is. He reminds me a lot of Deadpool where like he exists to be challenged by everything and his whole his specialty his like superpower is his ability to survive and i think that's what makes him an interesting character for a lot of these questions all right i forgive you for choosing him i guess you picked him two weeks in a row all right asshole. <laughs> actually one of my favorite things that i ever wrote on the internet about uh about any wrestler was just the sentence Dean Ambrose is Donald Duck period <laughs> he is but I love Donald Duck so I don't care oh no so do I so do I he's my favorite of yeah. the Disney um, characters no maybe of the core of the core family <laughs> he looks like he can he looks the part in a way that he genuinely looks like a tough guy I don't know how else to put it like he fits that that part of the narrative of like someone fitting uh, being like you don't have to stretch that part of your imagination to see him winning a fight especially if he fights like a normal person and not like a cartoon character like I, I think he has the ability to have this like hyper realistic style that stretches the bounds of that athletic realism we were talking about earlier. No, definitely. I I, I think that uh I think that it, it's like the it's always sunny bit about the the brains, the face, and the wild card. Like he is clearly the wild card in any group of three people, and that 
even if he's not always making the most reasoned decisions or the best decisions, he's super willful in a way that you're intrigued to see what decision he's going to make and interested to see how he's going to follow through on it and deal with the consequences. Even when you know there's going to be bad consequences, you're like, Jesus, this is a terrible mistake. Why are you just hanging out here with this nymph for four years? Why are you not getting back to your wife? You know what I like? He, he, yeah, no, no, that's it. Consequences and the will are the two words I was searching for and I couldn't find. He has the strongest will out of any character I can think of, even more so on some level than Stone Cold, because Stone Cold wanted to, on some level, be left alone. Dean Ambrose can't be left Like, he is too proactive a kind of character, where, like, Stone Cold, more often than not, would, like, be willing to meet Vince McMahon like a certain way through. And then Vince McMahon would do the heel thing where like Dean Ambrose is, is chaotic. Like I said, he's not ever lawful. And that's, what's like interesting about him. He's, he's, he's all will and like id and there's very little, but he, he has an, he almost like skips over ego entirely and jumps straight to super ego where his id and his super ego are kind of like working out what he should be doing. Like everything he understands, he understands there's a consequence to everything he does, but that does not stop him from doing the thing. And that makes him an incredibly compelling wrestling character. But that compulsion to want to watch him, that being compelled to want to watch him, also leads us to being very disappointed because we understand, I think, the outer reaches of this character. And they kind of aren't... They are starting to make that where he has the power levels to be able to do whatever he wants. But I I am interested in him... his epic story of wrestling. Cause I feel like I know where Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns are going to end up. I have no clue. Dean Ambrose could either be Roddy Piper or like triple H in terms of like his impact on the business in terms of championships, not in the background of the, the, the sport of the, uh, of the industry, but like in terms of on character on television character, he could be one of the like epic characters in the history of the medium but they have to kind of figure out if that's what they want to do with him. But he also works in a, as just a character that is compelling throughout his entire career. Like uh, for the most part, like a rowdy, rowdy Piper. Did you have anything to plug this week? No, no big plugs on this week. Just follow me on Twitter at Dave writes junk. And um, you can check me out at the Nixer. That's T H E N one C K S T E R. You can check us out at how wrestling explains dot You can rate review and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google play store and pocket casts. Uh, thanks. Whoever in Ireland downloaded a bunch of episodes in the past couple of days. God bless you. Uh, check out H W E T W pod at uh, on Twitter. I don't, I don't have anything else left to say. Do you, Dave? Oh, I had a quick insight about uh, Pocket Cast, actually. Uh, what would that be? So earlier this week, I, uh, I put it in Urban Dictionary. And so it turns out, Nick, that what Pocket Casting is, it's like, are, are you familiar with the practice? Uh, I mean, I don't approve of this sort of language, but are you familiar with the practice of Pocket Pool? Uh, yes, so pocket casting, it's very similar where the, the pocket, the inner lining of the pocket is removed and then you tie a, a piece of fishing line with a, a big treble hook on the bottom of it to your finger and then you stick your hand in your pocket and you destroy your penis with a fishing hook. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fuck, I was so close to getting that out all the way without losing it. <laughs> so, so the eternal mystery has been solved. We, we finally have a grasp on what Pocket Cast is. So you do you out there. I'm, I'm sex positive. <laughs> Fight your tongue